Welcome to Mother Food, a podcast dedicated to mothers who turn the traditional role of feeding into professional success. I'm your host, Elisa Timoshkina, event planner, supper club host, cook, food writer and first-time mama. In this podcast, we will meet women who forged inspiring careers in food while also embracing life as mothers. We cover topics from life-work balance and self-nurture to pregnancy diets, breastfeeding, baby weaning, family meal planning and a lot more. No matter where you are on your journey now, you will find support, advice, inspiration and a community here. Mother Food is a space for heartfelt discussions filled with recipes, food memories, practical tips and honest insights into the lives of modern mothers. My guest today is a woman with the most amazing job in the world, in my humble opinion. Rachel Hollinger is a postpartum chef and doula who looks after mothers in the most challenging times of their parenting life, often referred to as the fourth trimester. Rachel's own difficult postpartum became a pivoting point, inspiring her to employ her skills as a chef to help mothers experience a healthier and a gentler postpartum period. This conversation is full of eye and heart opening insight amazing practical tips for self-care through nourishment, mindset and daily practices, as well as some really comforting messages, which I hope will resonate with so many mamas out there. This conversation left me feeling so grateful on behalf of all mothers for the work of postpartum doulas, and also wishing that one day every mother will have the opportunity to benefit from that amazing support. Talking to Rachel, who has the most soothing voice, by the way, was like a therapy session to me. And editing this episode was another important moment of going over my own experience, often crying and smiling. And in doing so, moving even closer towards complete acceptance of my own postpartum story. It really was a challenging period for me, which I did not anticipate in a million years. And I feel that with each episode of this podcast, I'm helping myself make sense of my own life as a mother. So from my personal experience, I just wanted to add a little insight that I found particularly helpful. So to any mother who still harbors some feelings, memories or emotions that she finds difficult to reconcile and perhaps that impact her life in unhelpful ways today, I would invite you to revisit those moments with kindness and compassion to yourself and if you can give yourself a chance to relive them over again but from a place of emotional and physical safety and wholeness. I wanted to share my own example to really illustrate what I mean by that. For some reason, I have really focused my attention during pregnancy on that very first night after birth, where I imagined myself blissfully cradling and feeding my baby. The reality could not be more different. 
I was exhausted after labor, completely numb and disorientated. And my weak attempt to ask if I could feed my baby during the night was met with a very firm no from the nurse who said that we both needed to sleep. So I did. Occasionally waking up from the bright lights, the noise and the unbearable heat of the postpartum ward. In a complete haze, clear enough just to see that my baby is still alive and breathing. I had no energy to get up, let alone to hold her or feed her. And for a very long time, I could not forgive myself for leaving her all alone during her first night in this world. The fear that I have caused some damage is overwhelming at times. But I found a way to make peace with that night and forgive myself. And the way I did that was to consciously be present for her and to be with her during so many more night feeds. I held her with all my love and tenderness, aware of that bliss that is forever ours, gradually replacing the feeling of guilt with a feeling of profound gratitude. I don't know why am I telling you all this. <laughs> I really felt inspired after talking to Rachel to take on her advice about the importance of sharing your stories and talking about the difficulties in order to help yourself heal. So I hope you forgive this little moment of self-indulgence and I very much hope that my story opens up a space for other mothers who feel shy or not confident enough to share and open up about their difficult times. Please do join in the conversation over on Instagram. And if you ever feel like reaching out, please do send me a message or an email. I would absolutely love to hear from you. So without any further ado, I introduce you to the wonderful Rachel Hollinger. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to Mother Food. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say your job, well, I don't know if that's even the right word to call it a job. It just seems like such a beautiful calling or lifestyle, mm. postpartum doula and a chef. Could you tell us how you came about doing this and exactly what does a role of a postpartum doula and a chef require? Yeah. Well, I think it's both. It's funny that you said, I don't know if, I, if it's a job or a calling. Um, I think it's both. Yeah. I, a lot of times I long for it to be viewed as a career. I think a lot of what we kind of term women's work, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's people don't necessarily view that as as career or something you can make money doing. But I do think we're seeing a rise in more women taking up um, these older, more sacred forms of work that women used to do in their communities and their careers now. So I consider it a job, but I do consider it a calling for sure. It is my life's work. And before I came to this, my degree is in culinary arts. So that was my background. And I did a lot 
within that. But once I I had my daughter, I think um, because that is such a transformation for women, you know, we really become different people. I think that affected my work with food as well in that I felt this pull to focus more on nourishing people, nourishing women in particular. And that combined with um, the fact that I had a, a really difficult and dark postpartum period myself, and I was going out and trying to find resources in which to help myself. I was sort of turned away by doctors um, who I spoke with that were just like, that's just normal. All moms feel this way. It's just hard. You got to move on, sort of. Mm. Um, and I just was left feeling like this just cannot be true that there is this large of a hole in our healthcare for women. And so much of it to me revolved around food and what we put in our bodies. So I just started doing the research. And when I gave birth to my daughter, I had some complications and my tailbone was broken during labor. And so I was on bed rest for quite a few months afterwards. So I had all these months in bed of just reading. And when I get really passionate about something, I just, I go really hard after it. (laughs) I want to know everything about this. And so that's how I stumbled across postpartum care and not so much in the U.S. It seems like we're a little bit behind um, in terms of offering that or making that accessible. And so I was actually received my education through a program in Australia that I really love. To answer the question of what a postpartum doula does, I get that a lot. Um, most people don't even know that, that this is a thing. <laughs> I wonder if it's even worth uh, explaining what a doula is anyway. I'm sure many of the listeners are in this kind of field of knowledge already, but just in case they aren't, could you yeah. talk about that as yeah. well? So a doula, I mean, the translation of the original, I think it's the Greek word, is helper. Um, so traditionally, it's just a woman who is a helpmate. Doula in the traditional sense started out as a birth doula. So someone who's going to be there during labor to support you emotionally and mentally and sometimes even physically with, you know, um, pain management techniques and things like that. And people often ask me, I'll say, I'm a postpartum doula and chef. And they'll say, oh, how many births have you attended? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like, no, I, I work with women after birth, which is, I mean, we've heard it talked about as the fourth trimester. Mm-hmm. To me, I really consider it to be part of the whole experience. But somehow, especially in Western culture, we've segmented that. To, it doesn't it doesn't link any longer with birth. So I work with women again as as a helper and as a support person after birth, and that to me for me is in the form of house visits. Um, so I might be when I'm working with a mother, I'm at her house usually two to three times a week, and food is a huge portion of what I do. Um, but I'm I'm using really targeted nutrition to at food as medicine um, to help facilitate healing in the mother's body and things like breastfeeding assistance, um, taking the baby so she can nap or shower or running her bath, um, massage. You know, it looks really different for, for each woman. I, I really think the care is, is as unique as the mother is. Um, and then, of course, things like 
birth processing and working through trauma and things like that is a huge piece of what I do. So yeah, that's kind of what I do in a nutshell. Although I, to me, it feels really nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds absolutely incredible. And I, what you're describing is resonating with me almost on a physical level because this is exactly what I needed in my fourth mm. trimester and so many women that I've spoken to since. I think in our modern lives when we don't have our immediate family around or many of us don't mm -hmm. and back in the day it would have been your mom or mm -hmm. you know a wise woman <laughs> yeah. that would be the doula for you so it's really incredible that there are other women like yourself who are actually carving that space for them as a career and as a calling and kind of becoming yeah. the surrogate yeah. wise woman for the contemporary mothers yeah absolutely and you're right it you know this used to be a huge part of just community care because that's the way we lived but we just don't live that way anymore and that's okay but we have to realize that you know our grandparents aren't living in our home with us in most cases or we've moved far across the globe from our family mm -hmm. I mean many most of the women that I work with are some distance from their family they have difficult relationships with their family you know they they don't have anyone to really go to for this kind of care. And I do think an important piece of it is having someone that's just completely objective and neutral. Mm -hmm. It The emotions and the ups and downs, they're just, they can be really large and uncomfortable. Yeah. And sometimes processing that, even with our partner, mm. who is also sleep deprived and going through a major transition um, into parenthood as well it they're just not the right it's not the right place it's not maybe the safest place to really come undone and I think it's important to be able to come undone for sure absolutely yeah that's such an important point you've just brought up that having someone who's objective because for me even though I've just said you know it's a shame that I didn't have my family around, but actually it was by choice. <laughs> my family doesn't live here, but my mom was eager to come a week before the due date. Right. Like, oh, let's just wait and see. I didn't want to have any pressure around the whole due date. Right. And then, yeah, I didn't know what I will be like myself, what me and my partner will be like. Mm -hmm. So we left it. We gave ourselves a month and a half. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah, process I think the whole thing so before wise. we invited the family. Oh, yeah. I think that's so good. I and I and most women don't feel the permission to be able to do that. It feels selfish or you know, whatever what whatever other labels that we've put on women in that yeah. situation. But it is your body, your baby, your home, um, and and often your home and even I talk a lot of, about your bed. Being this really sacred place postpartum there's just so much that happens there um, and you're in it so often with that baby and it's just blood sweat and tears and it's important to protect that and safeguard that and even sometimes it's at the cost of hurting feelings or you know that can be tricky but I think it's important for women to know they they have permission to guard that yes absolutely the whole idea of self-care and us as women immediately being trapped in this good girl mm -hmm. <laughs> mood of thinking that we need to please everyone and 
yeah, we don't want to hurt someone's feelings if we tell them not to come over. And right, yeah, right. it's fascinating and so inspiring to see that they are women who understand that and who, mm. you know, support newborn mothers in a way through that experience mm. as well. So, how mm. does the whole process work for you um, and your? Would you call them your clients or your customers? Yeah, yeah, my clients. Yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, do you meet them before they give birth, or kind of how does the whole um, experience works? Yeah. Um, well, we meet. I usually do a consultation with women again because I do feel like there is some education that needs to happen before a woman uh, even wants to work with me most of the time um, in just kind of going over, this is what I do. This is what postpartum care looks like. This is, you know, what my vision is for mothers and making sure that we're on the same page, kind of hearing a little bit of her story um, and why she's seeking it out. And then, um, and then if we go ahead and start working together, um, we do one prenatal appointment um, and then the others are all after the other house visits are all after she's home with the baby. And so that prenatal appointment's really important for me because it's, it's really personal work and it's a really raw, vulnerable time that you're just stepping into with sometimes a complete stranger. So it's important for me to get to know the mother a little bit um, so that I can anticipate her needs better um, later on and just understand. I just ask a lot of questions, just understanding, um, you know, did she have previous birth trauma? What are some of her hopes and her fears and what she actually wants this postpartum to look like so that I can help facilitate that? Um, so that prenatal appointment's really great. Um, and just getting to know my way around her kitchen. is <laughs> a good mm-hmm. big one too. And do you work on very individual basis in terms of food as well, that you cook something very specific that this particular woman wants, or do you have more of a menu or a package that is pretty much good for anyone? I offer the mother, I give her a pretty comprehensive list of the kinds of dishes that I would be making um, so, so that we can talk about what her tastes are and, and that kind of thing. But it really is tailored towards the mother for instance if I'm working with a mother in that first week after she's given birth and we've talked about her birth and I know she had um, let's say a postpartum hemorrhage and she's lost a lot of blood I would want to make sure that her nutrition is really full of iron and we're building that supply back up in her body that she's not still really deficient which can can cause a lot of issues um, blood loss for women so I might make her a really sweet oat porridge with black sesame. Both of those things are really high in iron. So I'm working specifically with the mother, but I have sort of a a repertoire to pull from Mm -hmm. um, of dishes that I I often cook. And sometimes if I have repeat mothers, they'll be like, I want you to make... Mm. Make me those sweet potato brownies again and make a lot of them or something like that. So they'll have requests. But um but yeah, I think it's important for the mother to love what she eats. Um yes. and to feel really happy and comfortable and food is a big portion of that. So I'm also really making sure that I listen to her and I'm making things that make her happy. And I mean that sounds really simple and trivial, but it 
a really big portion of, you know, boosting all of those love hormones. And even if it's just a bar of chocolate, <laughs> that can go a long way for a mother. Mm. Now, it's amazing that even though it does seem like the most obvious <laughs> statement that food should make you happy, but it's actually not that easy to achieve. I mean, for me, yeah. I was really into the whole holistic approach long before I got pregnant. And when I was pregnant, I was so keen to get to that postpartum thing where I thought I would really nurture myself. Mm-hmm. And then I was completely numb and lost and, mm-hmm. yeah, quite dark as well. So that's exactly the time where someone like you would step in and say, hey, okay, you know, relax. I'm going to prepare something delicious for you. And that mm-hmm. act of being fed yourself, obviously. Um, you know, as a mother, we're all thinking about like, we need to feed the child and it's all about the child's yes. baby's needs. But actually to be looked after and to be fed, that is so, so important. And I think mm-hmm. very undervalued or underestimated. Yeah. Well, and mother care is baby care, you know, uh, you can't, you can't focus all on, mm. on the baby being fed when the source of the baby's food is depleted and run ragged and, you know, you can't draw from a source that's empty. So I think that it all, I really view the mother as the center of her home, the center of her community. Everyone looks to the mother to dictate how are we doing today? How are we feeling, especially children? So if the mother isn't well, mind, body, or spirit, then everyone feels that there are repercussions for the entire family unit. It's interesting that you, you're talking about food really being such a part of emotional health as well. And I have had so many times when the mother is in bed and I bring something up to her to eat. And again, these are all pretty like simple, warm foods is kind of the staples that I'm sticking to for mothers. And I might serve her whatever it is, a bowl of porridge, some warm tea and a cookie um, with or a date with some tahini in it, you know, really simple things. And the mother will take a bite and just start to cry just oh. tears. And it's really interesting. I think I'm going to cry now. Yeah. And it was one of my favorite parts of my job because food allow, touches that place that, of tenderness that really allows us to let down and open up. And sometimes it's that simple act of, for a new mother, for someone to just bring you food in bed, you're in pain and you're tired. It, that's really moving in of itself. But I think tasting something that's really sweet and nourishing when a lot of mothers describe to me as feeling like little girls again postpartum themselves mm. um, just feeling in that vulnerable place and you just want to be taken care of that's really emotional so it's important not to overlook food in terms of emotional health and that's just something that I've seen time and time again from experience like I can't tell you how many mothers have just kind of broke down crying when they're eating a specific food wow that's that's really powerful yeah and since we are talking about uh, mental health and emotional well-being Obviously, even the act itself of being fed and being looked after through food is very important. But more specifically, are there any foods from a nutritional point of view that should be consumed at that time? Are there any kind of feel-good, high-mood foods? (laughs) 
Well, I talked about uh, earlier about boosting those like feel good hormones, which would be oxytocin is that love hormone. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is one of my main priorities when we're talking about foods that affect mood. I'm making sure that I, that the mother has really high levels of oxytocin because that's present at birth just naturally to help us bond with our babies. It should be present through postpartum, but for many women, it just, it tanks. Like it just goes way, way down when, once you're home. Um, And part of that is just because everything that's kind of being thrown at you in those days. So uh, sweet foods are, you know, do not avoid, I, there's lots of moms who are like, I need to lose the baby weight. And so they Mm. cut sugar and they cut, you know, carbs and fat and things like that. But our bodies just have to have that. I mean, they just have to, to produce breast milk. Yes. Mm -hmm. But also just to sustain your body. So I focus with mothers on really good forms of fat, things like full fat coconut milk, egg yolks, really dark raw sugars. And ghee is a huge one, um, which is an Indian clarified butter with the dairy uh, solids removed from it. So it's just really thick and sumptuous and buttery and sort of caramelly tasting. Mm-hmm. Um, I use that a lot. It's a really great source of fat for mothers um, and especially mothers dealing with like, you know, a, some babies can't tolerate dairy. So that's, um, yeah. that, that's lactose free. So things like that and chocolate, I know that sounds cliche, but it's a big one. <laughs> um, I love making homemade chocolate bars with, you know, just like some really chunky sea salt and maybe rose petals or oh, dried nettle leaf or something like that on top. It's such a treat and will boost oxytocin. It will get that surge in hormones that she really needs. So I'm kind of a nerd with all of that too. So I could go on and on about <laughs> Please, that's the perfect space for it. <laughs> um, it's just so, there's, a, there's so many avenues. Herbs are another great one. So I make a lot of teas. Um, you can just get oh, so much goodness. Nettle tea is a, is a really big one for mothers. So I like to have lots of big jars of that in her fridge mm-hmm. or, or just sitting on the counter even to drink at room temperature. So that's just a few examples. And the other thing that was really interesting, you've mentioned that as part of your offering to the mother, you also work through any psychological effects, you know, the birth trauma and so on. Could you explain how that works? So to me, that is such a substantial piece in a mother's healing process. You know, some mothers might experience a week or two of pain. Others, it's a much longer process, physical pain. And once that sort of wears off and, and you feel like you can sit down on, on a kitchen chair normally and you can feed your baby without feeling quite so stressed out. And it's easy to feel like, oh, I must be done. I think I'm healed. (laughs) I think I'm, you know, back to normal, quote unquote. But what's going on internally for a mother is a much slower healing process. And so some women who don't deal with what happened during birth or, or even what happened in that just the transition to motherhood as a whole will find themselves three, six months postpartum, just starting to hit these weird invisible walls of like, 
I don't understand why I feel so sad or why I'm crying so often again. I, I don't understand why I feel so angry. You know, all these things that kind of come out of the blue um, to me is just a sign that there's some things that, that weren't dealt with on the front end. So uh, part of what I do with mothers is just to unpack that a little bit. It's different for every mother when she's ready to talk about it. It can be if it's too close <laughs> to mm-hmm. the trauma, it, I really let her take the lead and when she's ready to get into some of that. But I do highly recommend that we do at some point in the six to eight weeks that we work together. I mean, a big piece of that is just leading her back through her birth story. So going back to the beginning, wherever she feels the beginning was. um, And as she's talking through it, working through it, we might have, I might ask her to have her journal out to write things down as they come up. Just asking lots of why questions, paying attention to her emotions, her body language. Often women will talk about something and when they get to a part that makes them very uncomfortable, they start talking faster like just to get mm-hmm. through it. Mm-hmm. Um, or they might start, you know, really like wringing their hands or they might just start crying and say, oh gosh, I don't know why I'm crying when I am talking about, you know, what this, what a nurse said to me or something that seems trivial. So it's helpful to have somebody sitting there to, to help you slow down and be like, oh, okay, this is making you feel some kind of way. Let's slow down and talk about why that might be. Um, and then just kind of methodically working through your birth story that way is so healing. Oh my word. It's so therapeutic, even for me as a facilitator mm. of those conversations and then continuing to be around to just watch out for red flags of maternal mood disorders throughout those six to eight weeks is helpful. If I think that she might need, you know, some other sort of intervention, she might need to uh, speak to a psychiatrist. And I'm, I'm partnered with several that work specifically with mothers. So that's kind of part of it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and crying. I just, I love tears. I think they're such a good tool and um, giving her lots and lots of opportunities to cry um, is something that I, I, I'm really big on. How do you feel in that process? Do you cry with them? I would imagine it's such a raw connection that you establish. You know, when I started the work, I quickly realized that I was going to have to deal with some of my own mm-hmm. birth trauma. It, you know, it can be really triggering. And you, I think as a postpartum doula, you have to know what those triggers are for yourself and be ready for that. Um, I do cry with mothers sometimes. I think it's really a beautiful moment. If, if that feels right, if that feels like what she needs to have another woman sitting next to you and just weeping with you with an arm around you, um, that kind of companionship can be really healing. But then other times, the, and this is where it, where it just comes to getting to know the mother and kind of what she needs, but sometimes they need you to just be that a complete rock. Mm. Um, And so it's a matter of assessing that, but it can be heavy. Something that I started doing early on in this work was when I get home from a house visit, I just find a quiet spot and I light a candle and I just take a moment to honor that mother who I was working with and honor anything she chose to share with me um, and her story. 
um, and I might say a few words for her or say a prayer. And then I just blow the candle out because for me, I'm a sensory-oriented person, and I just needed something that was a physical example of that letting go for me because then I go and I need to make dinner for my family and get my baby to bed and all of that. And it can weigh really heavily on my shoulders. So it's helpful for me to have a ritual in which I feel like I can honor the mother and then release that as it's not my own. And so that's been, things like that have been helpful to me as well. That's amazing. And it makes perfect sense. I was going to ask you, how do you manage to leave that day behind and you almost are a mother full-time at work, mothering yeah. other mothers, and then you come home and you are a mother to your own child. So it's a beautiful ritual to you know, mark that transition between the two roles of motherhood that you have. Yeah. Yes, I, I have to practice what I preach for sure because I, I've reached points of burnout often and I felt that I needed to you know it, it you're right it is like being a mother <laughs> full-time at work and at home so there's been times when I felt like I needed to take a step back I've I've taken months off here and there of just not having a client that month so that I can be with my daughter or just take care of myself so yeah it's a balance it really is and it's interesting to establish a kind of a bigger social picture from what I understand, the postpartum support for mothers and working mothers is not particularly good in the States. Mm, yeah. So um, what was that experience like for you? You've already touched upon that. It was quite challenging and difficult. How did you cope before you trained and got all these beautiful tools in your you know, disposition? How did you personally manage the postpartum period? Yes, because I, I, you know, I didn't have any of any of this insight when I first became a mom. I was just like every other shocked and confused mother I had, that had no idea what they were doing. And even though I thought I was prepared, I had always wanted to be a mother. I knew that I had a very nurturing personality. You know, I, I thought that that would make everything okay. Um, it certainly helped, but it's, it's just indescribable. And I remember feeling uh, almost betrayed mm. by the women who'd gone before me. Yes, I felt did, exactly did you feel the same. That? Yeah, yeah that's just, that word betrayed, yeah. <laughs> and I, it feels a little harsh, but I felt like, no, why did nobody tell me? That this was, why did everyone make this out to be that there was no train? It was just a seamless transition, um, and that I I wouldn't be in pain or I wouldn't be afraid. I don't know. I just had never heard women talk about that. I had heard about some of the more cliche things like you know stretch marks and mm. um, you know is sex going to be the same or you yeah. know things that are very surface level. I think. I, I was not prepared at all. So it was, I, I was diagnosed with postpartum depression and PTSD. My daughter was six months old before I really felt like I could see myself and see her and just be present. I was just in a complete fog. I even remember, I think it was four days after I'd had her, 
that I noticed that her hair was dark like mine. I didn't, I hadn't even registered what color her hair was. And that's how removed I felt from the situation. And I, I think I really had to grieve that because what's portrayed in media sometimes is that they hand your baby to you and it's this beautiful, like fireworks kind of moment. Um, and I do think that it is for some women, but I didn't have that. Um, and I didn't even really have that until a few months down the road. Did mm -hmm. I feel like I had just fallen in love with my child? I was so hurt and overwhelmed and confused. So I think to me, and honestly, like other women in this line of work that I've spoken with have very similar stories in that it took a lot of heartache and um, reaching a dark place for them to find their calling to this work. It's almost like postpartum care is like born out of adversity is what it feels like. And that is a silver lining to the situation. And for that, I'm very thankful because if, if I had breezed through it, I would have breezed past all of the mothers who, for whom that is not the case. And I think that that is still happening. So yeah, it was not easy. Um, but I'm really, I'm really, really thankful that it led me to this work. Mm, absolutely. And do you know what are the usual factors that play into that condition of postpartum depression or baby blues, as they call it? Is there something to do with your experience of birth, mm. the nutrition that you've had, or the personal community around you? It's such a fascinating subject because I've had a similar experience. Um, again, I was never uh, diagnosed uh, with uh, depression, um, but I mean, I felt very similar to what you've just described. And I started, only recently I started looking, just thinking, why did that happen? Because I was so in love with my pregnancy and my child when she was still inside me. Mm -hmm. And then once she was born, I just, after a few hours, I just went numb. And I was numb mm -hmm. for at least six weeks, two months. Mm -hmm. But I, I haven't found, apart from the fact that, you know, if you're artificially induced, that uh, pitocin, you know, the artificial mm -hmm. hormone, it can affect your body's natural ability to produce oxytocin. Mm -hmm. So that's the only reason that I could find to just kind of make myself, mm -hmm. I don't know, feel better, kind of justify my own guilt that I'm a horrible mm -hmm. mother for feeling that way towards my child. Um, what was your experience? You know, what kind of information did you find? I think there is something to the Pitocin that's a part of the scientific answer to it. I think that is a piece of the puzzle, but it is a puzzle. I think mm. there are so many pieces in why women end up feeling that way. And the common answer to that question would just be, you know, oh, it's hormonal. It's just your hormones are changing and it causes you to feel more sad and so and then it'll just go away on its own i don't believe that to be entirely true either though i think that feminine support is massively overlooked um, in a factor of preventing maternal mood disorders and something that i have found is that so there's like the masculine way of, of dealing with things and there's the feminine the masculine would be um, you know, very driven, fast-paced, fixing, solving, lots of advice, like that sort of thing. And then the feminine way is a much slower, gentler pace. It's about listening, 
intuition, holding space for someone. Mm -hmm. And so what we see most of the time in healthcare is just a really great example of something being given the masculine approach. You know, it's just you're in and you're out and you just, if it doesn't work, take it out, (laughs) you know, um, band-aids on the situation doctor's orders, sort of that. That's a very masculine approach. Again, it's not wrong. I do believe it is wrong when it's applied to healthcare for mothers. What happens after we have a baby is that as women have been living in a masculine society, um, and many women maybe unknowingly try to be more masculine Mm -hmm. in order to be more respected as a woman. Um, And then we have a baby and our bodies literally require us to be feminine to slow way down um and to feel and um you know maybe even have space and silence and all these things that we're just so unused to um encountering in our culture and i think that that can be really really confusing for women Sometimes it feels really foreign. It simulates that feeling of like, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't feel at home in my own body. So to me, I think a really pivotal part of women being able to avoid some of these maternal mood disorders is being provided with a feminine approach to healthcare. And that's, you know, mentally, physically, all of it. And having someone who will really listen to the mother and see the mother and kind of figure out what she needs. Often mothers will say what they need and and they're just not listened to. Mm. Um, Or they're labeled as hormonal or crazy or sleep deprived, you know, all of those things. But mothers don't really need to be told how to be mothers. They already know. Um, They just need to be given permission to trust their intuition. If you're never given permission or opportunity to do that, you will flounder. So I think that that's a huge piece of it, that feminine versus masculine approach. And we're seeing that more and more, you know, with midwifery care and doulas and these women who are sort of taking those positions back up, Mm -hmm. um, women caring for women, that's going to make a really big difference. This is so amazing what you're saying now, because, oh, I mean, I'm getting quite emotional because it really just opened my eyes to what was happening to me during my first three four weeks Mm. um it was exactly that i mean it was just me and my partner and as i love him dearly and he was trying his best but i did feel there was a lot of the doing let's do this and you know and it just felt yeah the whole slowing down wasn't really there and then the Mm. obsession with numbers of trying to make sure she's been fed enough and and so i literally had like a notebook with you know yeah. timings and I felt like that would yeah. help me stay in control yeah and like having you heard you know say that about the feminine approach it just suddenly makes a whole lot of sense mm. absolutely that's that's funny about the notebook I have a lot of moms who will show me their notebooks and then I'll try to just really gently tell them to please throw it away mm. <laughs> because yeah that's a Western approach to medicine is that like every baby has to fit in this box. Every mother fits into this textbook of a way of doing things. And that is just not, it's not real life. 
feeding your baby every three hours for a certain amount of time works for some mothers and their children, and it doesn't work for others. And I think we just take so much freedom away from mothers and so much rest away when we require so much of them just to keep track and to conform. And that can be really, really stressful. And again, anything stressful is triggering to depression, sadness, anxiety, um, OCD behaviors. So eliminating anything that's going to trigger those kinds of behaviors for a mother is, is really key. Even though, just like you said, it is a way of feeling in control. And I totally understand that. But there are, to me, other healthier, like healthier behaviors of helping us feel in control as mothers. Things like, like we talked about before, like choosing who is in your home and who you're spending time around um, is, is a more intentional choice. Um, or choosing what you put into your body, what you're eating, what you're drinking are easier ways to kind of control the situation without it being like, you know, lots of numbers and schedules and things that are really meticulous. Mm. What would your advice be to women who are struggling to tune into their intuition and sit back and relax into their essence? Um, are there any tools or any practices that they could do to encourage the awakening of the intuition? That's a good question. I can give some examples, but I will say that it's so different for every mother. I think some things that I've had mothers do before is just to become comfortable with silence. I think that that's, that's really uncomfortable for a lot of women. Things like silence or even asking for help can feel foreign in our culture. So different things like I might have the mother just kind of lay down in bed and be comfortable just lay on her back and um, place one hand over her heart and then the other hand over a portion of her body that she feels really disconnected to. Mm-hmm. So often that might be if there's some scarring, you know, if she's had a C-section, it's over the scar or over her womb. Maybe it's over her head. <laughs> she's mm-hmm. feeling like in that fog. And I will often just lay on the bed next to her because you will feel like a, a real weirdo if you're just doing that with somebody <laughs> watching you. <laughs> so I'll often lay, lay down on the bed next to her and, and do it with her and just take really deep cleansing breaths and let her know that you know we're not going to speak or say anything for like 10 minutes, um, sometimes only five if, that, if, if that's the most that she can do. It is amazing what happens in those 10 minutes. Often the mother like has not allowed herself to just be comfortable to sit in silence for a reason because she's afraid that if she does, she's gonna feel something, something. She doesn't really know what. And things just sort of come and rise to the surface or at the very least, she's able to connect with her body, which is a big portion of it. Just that out of body experience that postpartum can sometimes feel like is confusing. So just being comfortable with silence, um, breathing for a while, being with yourself, being with your body is helpful. Um, journaling is really helpful if, if you're a woman who likes to write mm-hmm. or does that already. Just a lot of verbal processing, I think. It's just amazing what we discover about ourselves when we give the opportunity to. So much of postpartum is a rediscovery. You know, we birth a new life into the world, but we also birth a new version of ourselves and we can't overlook that. And so I think just being able to talk about that and talk about just, you know, how we feel, what we're thinking, 
what we're afraid of, voicing all of those fears, even if it's as simple as like, I have this pain right here and I don't know if that's normal. And in my head, I'm thinking something's really wrong and then I'm spiraling into, I mean, it could be like any tiny, small little thing. You're not going to necessarily make a doctor's appointment about or see a care provider for. You just need to be sitting across from another woman who who's kind of trained to answer some of those questions and facilitate that conversation. Mm. So that's it, it. That is just, it's a, something that's so simple, a conversation, but it can be very powerful. Mm. Yeah. I guess it's a human connection, but also there is something about women coming together that is just so special and magical. Mm. What could women do if they, for whichever reasons, they're not able to um, work with a postpartum doula, is there something they can do to um, get a similar experience? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I really recommend um, something that I call village building. So just reaching out to, you know, getting comfortable with the idea of asking for help um, and building, building your village around you. We, you know, we used to live in a village and we were cared for by our village um, traditionally and, now we just don't. Um, so we have to fabricate that mm. ourselves. And so often I will have mothers kind of work through an exercise of making two lists. And so the first list, I'll have them write down everything that won't get done if they stay in bed, which is normally like a really long list. Women will just like list and list and list. And <laughs> the world is going to fall apart if I do, if I stay in bed. And then the other list is for um, safe people. So I will describe, you know, somebody who you can cry in front of and be vulnerable, um, someone who's offering help with no strings attached, someone who will listen without judgment, uh, someone who might, you know, you'd be comfortable with seeing you naked. I mean, that's a big one. You're often breastfeeding or you might need help getting to the bathroom, things like that. And so make that list of safe people and then just start assigning things from your first list to those people. It's really that simple. <laughs> that feels really radical for a lot of us because it feels like such an inconvenience. How could I ever ask somebody to, to come do my laundry every Thursday or to run me a bath and then hold my baby so that I can get into it? really intimate things. But if it's a truly a safe person, they will delight in doing that for you. Mm -hmm. Just the way I know you or, or even I would feel that way about one of our, if one of our friends reached out and asked that of us, because by nature, because we are mothers, we would jump at that opportunity because Absolutely. we've been in the middle of that before. So we underestimate our village for sure. Yeah. I really want to talk about breastfeeding because it's another big mm -hmm milestone mm -hmm. and in my personal experience to me that was the big trauma not mm -hmm. the birth itself and since then I've come across so many stories where women felt like why no one told me that or I don't know what to eat or how do I know there's enough milk and oh, there's just so much stress and fear and mm -hmm. distrust and obviously, all of those things, they're so counterproductive to a healthy breastfeeding yeah. relationship. So I wanted to ask you, 
again about you know the toolbox of what food is really good to support milk production and also the rituals that can help overcome any difficulties they might have around breastfeeding breastfeeding is its own world honestly there's so many things that can go wrong and so many things that can go right and every woman is so different and what her supply is like so that's a big one as far as food oats is one of the big ones that we hear often but it it is true black sesame seeds fennel seeds i use those both a lot um, for lactation uh goji berries are an interesting one um but i actually put those in my lactation cookies um and they're really delicious that way um but you could sprinkle them over just about anything (laughs) yeah again things that are just really high in fat so like nut butters ghee avocado eggs those kinds of things you know you want to make sure you're eating the right things but you also want to make sure you're eating enough (laughs) Mm. um and i think that honestly is sometimes the bigger issue because you can eat all the right things, but you have one meal a day and it's just not enough. So for breastfeeding mothers, sometimes it's, it's easier to kind of throw that three meals a day thing out the window and just do lots of small meals and snacks all mm-hmm. throughout the day. It's more doable, you know, things you can eat with one hand because you are obviously nursing and that'll keep your blood sugar from dropping and it'll keep your milk supply really sustained because you can't always have something in your system. Our milk supply can be so sensitive to how much we're taking in. Nutritionally speaking, those are some tips, but then as far as like, oh, methods is, is hard again because I when I'm working with a mother... I'm looking at her body, her like breast shape and her nipple shape and her baby's latch and, and all that kind of stuff has a role to play. But there are a couple little hacks that I have found that I just kind of want every mother to know about. One of them is, um, is kind of just the timeline in which your milk comes in. Um, is really helpful to know. And that kind of information isn't always given to mothers at the hospital, but your milk comes in in days three to five, somewhere in there. That's where we can't put mothers in a box. Some women are like, whoa, I have so much milk on day three. And some women feel like their breast is just empty until day five. And so that's when panic kind of starts to rise. Like, where is this? Right in that days three to five, is there's a lot going on. There's a huge spike in hormones um, or an imbalance in hormones that happens in that window of time producing milk, but it actually causes mothers to feel really, really intense mood swings. Mm -hmm. Um, And it causes that engorgement and swelling and all of that kind of stuff. So I, I think that it's helpful to know that going into it, that, okay, days three to five, are going to be a little bit rough and you can kind of prepare yourself for that, you know, having some extra help around, have some good snacky food. You can have like some towels soaked in warm water with lavender oil to put on your breasts so that it kind of soothes that pain and swelling. And then there's these things called silverettes that I love for mothers. I give my, each of my mothers a pair. Um, they're like nipple shields made out of silver. Oh, wow. Um, and their silver is naturally antibacterial, anti-inflammatory. Um, and so instead of putting 
you know, we women put a lot of like, you know, those pads in your bra to keep mm-hmm. them leaking or to nipple soothers or things like that, which can actually trap um, bacteria there and lead to infections like thrush or yeast growth, things like that. The silver shields are like, oh, they're just genius because they soothe because they feel really cool and nice against the skin and bring the swelling down, but they're also killing like literally any bacteria that's growing there. So it protects both you and your baby from infection. So those are another, that's another hack that I have all mothers using, especially during those days three to five when things are really going, going, going when the milk is coming in. And again, like we can talk and talk and talk about this subject because there's a lot in there. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I just wanted to ask one more question on that subject. Um, Because it's something that I've really struggled with. And on the one hand, it's amazing how much um, information and how much encouragement there is for women to breastfeed. So the whole idea that breast is best, you know, Mm -hmm. it's out there, which is fantastic. Uh, But at the same time, if you are struggling to breastfeed Mm -hmm. for whichever reason, other than, you know, it's not your choice, you really want to, but something physically or emotionally is preventing you to establish that relationship. And I've heard, again, so many stories where women said, oh, you know, I was crying, I was depressed, my nipples were bleeding, but I pushed through. And that really feels slightly jarring for me to put your own mental and physical well-being so far out of the picture and just push Mm. and push yourself because breast is best and for me personally um, when I was struggling in my again my first six or eight weeks to establish breastfeeding I almost wish someone came in and gave me the permission not to push through and Mm. say it's okay and actually once I finally was able to let myself think that it's okay if I don't breastfeed, you know, it happens. And I really managed to give myself permission not to, then suddenly it was working. Mm. (laughs) And it was a real breakthrough for me mentally and physically, but it was only Mm. through being able to finally kind of become gentle on myself and um, kind of have some compassion for my own well-being Mm -hmm. that I was able to establish that healthy breastfeeding relationship I so dreamt about. So how do you navigate that question of woman's health versus the baby's health? Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is another situation in in which it's just not one size fits all. I mean, I'm a huge advocate for breastfeeding, but I also believe that fed is best, (laughs) Mm, not breast. Um, You know, as long as your baby is fed and healthy, like that's what matters. And you matter as the mother again, we're just coming back to like, there's so much baby care and there's not, there's no mother care Mm -hmm. in this process. Um, I have had situations in which the mother I was working with, I could see that the breastfeeding was becoming this divider between her and her baby. Like it was keeping her from bonding with her child. I didn't tell her what to do. I just recommended that she maybe think about discontinuing um, or just ask her to think about like, you know, how, how would you feel if we talked about discontinuing breastfeeding? And a lot of times it's like complete relief because women, a long time ago, women were encouraged to just go straight to formula 
And then Mm -hmm. now we're in this age where you are ashamed if you can't breastfeed for a certain amount of time Mm -hmm. exclusively. There has to be a balance to that, you know, and the mother's mental health has to be taken into account. A lot of times there's situations, there are a few conditions in breastfeeding in which the letdown of milk, it's called DEMER, D-M-E-R. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Fantastic. Yeah. You mentioned it. Mm. Yeah. So I've worked with mothers with this condition before. And so, and what it is, is when your milk lets down, it causes really intense emotions of sadness. For some women, it's more like anger, um, repulsion, um, like you're just repulsed by your baby, which sounds terrible. You know, like nobody wants to feel that way when, when they're breastfeeding. And some, and for some women, um, a, like an overwhelming feeling of nausea mm. as well. So you can imagine that if that's happening, every time your milk lets down to feed your baby, you're creating a really negative association with breastfeeding mm-hmm. and with your child. Um, so in those cases, I, I definitely recommend that the mother should like, let's find another way to feed your baby. And then afterwards, they thrive, both of them. I mean, it's just like a night and day difference. So again, yeah, it's not one size fits all. You have to look at things from all angles with that particular mother and figure out what she needs. And with a zero judgment, mm. <laughs> it's her, her body and her baby. And the mother does know best. Absolutely. Mm. 100% of the time. It seems like the most important thing that women need at that time is permission and space to experience mm. what they're going through. And Mm -hmm. to just know that it's okay. That's spot on. It's a simple act, but giving someone permission to feel something or think something or explore something is so powerful. Mm. How was breastfeeding for you personally? Oh, it was, it was no walk in the park. (laughs) It's really hard. Um, Again, I just, I didn't have anyone, anyone to really talk to about it. And I, I had mastitis several times and, and thrush and I would get like really severe um, clogged ducts. And then I eventually ended up talking with a lactation consultant, which um, they are like the good fairies of this world, lactation consultants. They're just so great. And um, I don't know why I held off as long as I did. I guess I wanted to again, like that control and and wanting to know that I could be self-sufficient. But then I finally talked to someone and she helped me with like some techniques for clogged ducts and and that really changed the game for me. But it wasn't really easy. I I had an oversupply, just so much milk. So I was just felt like in pain all the time, but it gradually got better and I just felt more confident with it. And I was able to breastfeed my daughter until she was two, which I was really, that's wonderful. For. Um, yeah. So it, it was up and down. Hmm. Would you say there's um, a common set of challenges that all moms face, regardless of how many children they have and, you know, where they are in their relationship or their partners? Is there certain, yeah, every mom has gone through that experience. Over all of my time working with mothers and thinking about the words, like the language that mothers use most, um, a word that I hear a lot is isolated. Mm. Um, And that seems to be a really common theme. Um, So just that feeling of like, 
I'm the only woman going through this and everyone else has had a much easier time or everyone else pushed through easier and for some reason I can't, you know, that that self-talk of of that we're so alone in something and no one no one understands that. I think that that's really common. And I think the remedy to that is talk to other mothers <laughs> mm-hmm. because I guarantee you that that is not the case. Um, so that's why mother's support groups are, are so great. I think um, I facilitate a mother's circle. Any mother that I, I have worked with in the last year is pretty much part of it. And it's the most beautiful group. I mean, most of the time I feel like no one even needs me there because <laughs> <laughs> they just like, commiserate and love each other and care for each other so well and one mother will bring up something she's struggling with and like five other mothers will say oh that happened to me too just that experience alone of having someone else say oh me too I think is it's just pure therapy for mothers Mm. (laughs) so yeah definitely that loneliness isolation um, negative self-talk is is a big one for mothers and and more I think increasingly hospital trauma is something I work through most of my mothers with you know depending on where they delivered um, there's just a lot of a lot of stuff going on in and I don't know if that is I'm not quite sure because I work with mothers in the U.S. I don't know if that's the case in other countries but in the U.S. it seems um, like it's almost like it's just getting worse um, mm-hmm the things that are said and, and done to mothers, the way mothers are treated, especially mothers of color. Um, mm. It's just can be really horrific. So I, I sometimes feel like I have a lot of work to do with a mother in terms of, you know, what she was told um, about even just like, you know, Oh, your nipples are the wrong shape. You're never going to be able to nurse normally. Like, mm. like a doctor will say that to a mother and, to say that to a mother who's feeling afraid and vulnerable is just like it's it's like putting a death sentence on her whole journey to breastfeeding her child. Mm. So I think we have to be a lot better about that, um, mm. about how we speak to mothers. But mm. yeah, I think those are two resonating themes. Mm. I mean, your words are so soothing to me now. Um, mm. So I can only hope that other women, especially if they are at an earlier stage of their motherhood journey, are really finding comfort in what you're saying now. Well, I hope so too. And I hope that women realize that it does not have to be this way. I mean, that's why I do what I do, you know, regardless of any of your previous experiences. The women that I work with have beautiful, peaceful, uh, gentle postpartums and it is so moving to me to watch it. It gives me hope um, if I ever do that again. Um, it's, it does not have to be that way. So take hope and <laughs> take heart. You know, it's knowledge is power. So the more we learn about these kind of things, the better we can do next time. Mm. Rachel, thank you so much for the work that you do because that really is one of the most important things you can provide for a mother. And also, thank you for finding the time to talk to me on the weekend. You know that we had to take the time out from (laughs) family time to do this recording. So I'm particularly grateful for that. 
Thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you for having me. It was really lovely to talk with you. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast. I would love to know what you think of Mother Food. So please rate and leave a review. You can find me on Instagram at Elisa Timoshkina and do visit my website, elisatimoshkina.com for show notes and recipes featured on this podcast. Okay.